Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is a Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. If you have any questions, go ahead and put them in the comment section. Just put the word question in front of it, and we'll get to them in order. Our first question today is one that comes from a controversy that is going on right now, and that is whether or not Christians and Mormons believe in the same Jesus. And this controversy comes because Dallas Jenkins, the director and creator of The Chosen, which I believe, by the way, is a good show. In fact, I think it's a great show. I think he's done a great job on the personality of Jesus. They've done a great job on the personality of the disciples. The way that they have presented certain scenes is very moving. People have been touched by it. People have been saved watching it. I think it's a good thing. However, in the second season, they went to... Oh, however, in the second season, I thought for a minute I was recording and not live. Uh, for the second season, uh, they went to some place in Utah to record the second season. And uh, when they did that, some Mormons got involved with the programming. And that has caused people some concern. I'm not concerned about that. If Dallas Jenkins is sound in his theology and what he believes, then I don't think it's going to leak into the show. However, he made a controversial statement when he said, I believe that Mormons and Christians believe in the same Jesus. And he said it strongly. He said it emphatically. He said, I'll, I'll stand or fall on this statement. And he stands by it still today. On uh, Ruslan's podcast, uh, he said that he had certain friends that when he talked to them, he realized they believed in the same Jesus. So he softened it some instead of just saying the, the LDS church or the Mormons believe the same thing. The question is, do we believe in the same Jesus? And the answer to that is no. The Jesus of the Mormon church and the Jesus of Christianity is different. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11:4. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, so there can be different Jesuses. If he who comes preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. In other words, Paul was concerned about the Corinthians putting up with another Jesus. And the Mormons are on a campaign that they are just Christians that believe some things differently. They used to say bad things about Christians and hate Christians, but they want to rebrand themselves as LDS and Christians today. And so you, if you go on and you look up do Christians and Mormons believe the same thing? You're going to find a lot of propaganda that comes from the LDS church telling you that it is the same thing. They use terms like we use, like Godhead and salvation, and Jesus is the only way to salvation. But when you look at the definitions of what they mean by Godhead or what they mean by uh, salvation, then you quickly learn they're using terms, and I think this is deceptive. They're using terms that we Christians would listen to and go, oh, that's the same, but they mean something entirely different about it. They believe in many gods. They believe that Elohim is a man and has a body just like ours and is capable of having sex and does with his many wives that are up in heaven. In fact, this is our first point of what they believe about Jesus that makes him a different Jesus. And that is they believe that Heavenly Father had sex with one of his many wives, Heavenly Mother, and they had a spirit baby, the very first one. They had many more after that. They would say, including you and me, but their first born baby was Jesus. 
And Jesus excelled in influence and power until he rose to the position of God. So they do not believe that God the Father, heaven, their Heavenly Father, and, and Jesus are the same. The Bible tells us, Hear, O Israel, God is the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, the Lord our God is one God. They don't believe that. And also, they believe that Heavenly Father had a sexual relationship with Mary to produce Jesus. When the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit supernaturally placed Jesus inside of Mary's body. Now, these two things are enough for us to know that, like, like Paul said, this is a different Jesus. And we ought to have the same concern that people would put up with it today. A different Jesus being taught, a different gospel being taught, which is what I believe that they are doing as well. So to summarize, they believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer because Lucifer was the second one born. They both presented themselves as saviors, by the way, and God chose Jesus to come and be the savior of the world. That's what the, the, the Mormon church believes and teaches. So we believe that Jesus is God. They believe he is a God. We believe that Jesus is the creator of Lucifer. They believe he is the brother of Lucifer. They believe that Jesus is a result of a sexual union between Heavenly Father and Mary. And actually that he married her, that, that he was his wife. Then Joseph was his second husband. And remember, polygamy is not a problem in their theology. All of these things will tell us that that is not Jesus. Listen to what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 18. They believe that this was a creed from the early church. He is the, this is Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. Being the image of God, he's the, he is the express image of God. That is, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then uh, in 1, 14, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory as the only begotten of the Father. Now, that tells us that he is God. And here it's telling us he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, or firstborn over all creation. Not the firstborn of all creation, but the firstborn over all creation. It doesn't mean that he was the first one born. It means that he is the heir, that he holds the position, the right of the firstborn, which was to receive everything in their day. And we are co-inheritors with Jesus because he has inherited everything. It goes on to say, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Everything was created by Jesus in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Jesus was not created when heavenly father and heavenly mother had sex and made baby Jesus or baby spirit Jesus. He was all, he has always been and he created everything. And he gives a list of all the things that he created. It says, uh, things invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions, that's kings and kingdoms, principalities and powers, which are angel and demonic beings. He created them angels and then they fell. And then he says, all things were created through him and for him. He was before all things and in him all things consist. He created everything. In John chapter one, it says all things were made by him and nothing was created without him, including himself. He created everything and nothing was created without him. It goes on to say, and he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in all things he may have the preeminence. It becomes very clear when you look at the scriptures. The Mormon church believes that the scriptures are incomplete and Joseph Smith gave them the documents that would complete everything and give them the true and the right story. It becomes clear that it, we do not serve the same Jesus as the Mormon church does. Now, I, I've got to believe that Dallas Jenkins has looked over all of these things. By softening it, he's really trying to, to uh, present himself as believing what's proper about the Mormon church, but saying that some of them believe in the same Jesus that he believes. And we could give him the benefit of the doubt. But I thought that it would be good for us to tackle this topic and to truly understand that we do not, save, say, <laughs> that we do not serve the same Jesus. I understand that the Mormon church is on a campaign to try to make us think that, they, that we do, but we do not. All right, so um, that's our first question for the day. And let me go ahead and go and take your questions. All right, good to see you guys here. Um, glad you could join us. Uh, we have our first question from Andre. Um, Andre says, uh, who do you believe authored the, Bible, the book of Esther? I know some say a Mordecai. If that's the case, in reading, it, it, it could I, it, be, it have been authored by Esther or Hathak, or the eunuch. Uh, he, was, uh, he was the go-between. Um, sorry, Andre, I just, I just, it's been so long since I've covered the book of Esther um, that I haven't looked into the authorship probably for 20 years, and I just don't know. I need to do some research on it. I need to look it up. Um, I'll try to remember to do that, and then you can bring up the question again and I'll be able to take a look at it and see whether or not um, I can answer that, all right? Um, so sorry, I just don't know. Uh, JG says, uh, hi, and he comes to us from uh, YouTube. Hi, Pastor Robert. Were you able to find any books, resources uh, in Christian history? Um, Miller's Church History or The History Made Easy are good books on Amazon that I've found. Yeah, I think they're good books as well. And no, I didn't, JG, I'm sorry. Uh, I had a text sent to me that I would do it and I meant to do it and I just things just got away from me and I wasn't able to look them up. Um, but I do think that they are good. And there are some very concise books on church history. There's some that you can dive in a lot more. And remember, it's a broad topic because the church not only expanded up into what is modern day Turkey and then over into Europe, but the church also expanded over into Alexandria, Egypt. And so you've got church fathers that go all, all over the place. And a lot has been written about them. And it's really hard to say emphatically what church fathers believed. And um, those who comb through these things, uh, they have a big job and they do it well. All right, so thank you, JG, I appreciate that. I was not able uh, to go and do those things. Um, let's see, question, Daniel, good to see you, Daniel. Uh, Daniel is one of our moderators as well as Keith. Uh, Daniel says, with the plan of for Starlink having 12,000 low earth satellites, could that be what John saw falling in Revelation 6.13 and the stars falling when the heavens and the earth were shaken? Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate that. Uh, it's, I guess it could be. Um, I don't know if literally the stars fall from the sky. It says that heaven and earth are shaken. So it's not just an earthquake, 
it's a heaven quake as well. And um, how much of these things are literal? Are the stars literal or do they represent something? We don't really know. Um, the general rule is if it can be taken literally, you should take it literally. If the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. It's kind of a rule in, um, in hermeneutics, the study of the scriptures, that when you start allegorizing too many things, you can get away from the original meaning of the text. That doesn't mean everything that we think is literal is actually literal. Things could be done different. It's interesting though, when you look at the fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's almost always literal. In fact, there, I think there's only one case where it's not. In other words, when it says that Jesus was brought out of Egypt or his son would be brought out of Egypt, he literally came out of Egypt. When it says he was born in Bethlehem, he literally was born in Bethlehem. When it says that he would die for our sins or by his lashes we would be healed, he literally was lashed, he literally died. Almost all the prophecies you find in the New Testament quoted from the Old Testament were fulfilled literal. And I think that is going to the Bible and examining how the Bible does something and something we learn from them. So could be, Daniel, maybe. Um, but I don't think there's any way for us to know. All right, so thank you very much uh, for your question. I appreciate that and appreciate you, Daniel, and all the, all the work that you do. All right, so um, we have a question from Jari. Jari comes to us from YouTube. Uh, Jari says, question, is it biblical for a Christian to feel someone else's pain physically? Or is this a new aged thing, Hebrews 13, three? Also, what is meant by the former things won't be remembered? All right, well, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at Hebrews 13, three. Hebrews 13, three. All right, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you and we'll take a look at it. So it says, remember the prisoners as if changed with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves also, you yourselves are in the body also. All right, so I see what you're saying about that. Let me go back here to where I think we are. Yeah, okay, so your question is, is it biblical for a Christian to feel someone else's pain physically or is this a new age thing? Then you give Hebrews here, which talks about remembering the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you're also part of the body. Um, I would say that I can't think of anything biblical that would make me think besides empathy that I'm going to feel what you're going through. If I've gone through a similar thing, then I can empathize better with you. But yeah, I think there are a lot of new age teachings that make their way into the church. And I think we've got to be careful that we don't start believing something that we don't have scripture to back it up. We want scripture to be able to back up what we believe. And I don't think there's anything that says that there's a gift of feeling what other people are feeling um, that you could somehow feel it. Um, could God do that? Well, you know, God could do whatever he wants to do. I just wouldn't say it's a thing that God's not going to give somebody a gift of feeling other people's pain or struggles or, or whatever they're going through, uh, physical pain, emotional pain. Um, I, I don't think that that would be the case. All right, Jari, thank you very much. I appreciate that.
and we have another question here good to see you guys by the way a lot of you guys logged on we have an, a question here from psychman 45 psychman good to see you uh, he says um, when battling strongholds Jesus um, un, well, whatever the word is says uh, figuratively serve serve a hand Matthew 5:30 and 8:18 might sacrificing a hand be more easily accomplished if connected to 18 Matthew 18:29 All right so I think Matthew 5:30 is the passage where Jesus says to cut your hand off and sorry I don't understand your question completely psych man um, but let me see if I could kind of take a stab at this and look so Matthew 5:30. I'm just take a look at this really quick and make sure it's the one I think I'm thinking it is. Matthew 5:30 says, um, "Yeah, if your right hand causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable that you would one member uh, that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it would be more profitable." For you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell all right and then let's go ahead and go over to Matthew 18 8 and um, Matthew 18 8 and 29 all right so go math back to Matthew and uh, 28 and first of all look at Matthew 18 oops we won't go Matthew 18 ah. all right Matthew 18 then we'll go to 28 or 8 actually <laughs> all right uh, if your hand or foot causes you to sin cut it off and cast it from you it is better for you to enter into life lame or marred rather than having two hands and two feet and be cast into the everlasting fire then let me look at 28 and we'll be ready to answer your question here at least what I think your question is all right so Matthew 1829 uh, says and let me go ahead and put this one up uh, on the screen for you I just didn't because I was looking at so many scriptures um, so his fellow servant fell down at his feet begging him saying have patience with me and I will pay you all okay so I'm sorry psych man I don't see the connection between that last passage and your question um, so yeah Jesus is speaking figuratively there in heaven there's no more lame right so no one can be missing a hand or a foot because we're in our glorified bodies and our glorified bodies have made us completely whole what jesus is saying in that passage is do radical things when it comes to battling strongholds when it comes to battling sin go to the nth degree go to the radical to be able to to be victorious over those things for it would be better for you to give some things up than to have it affect your eternity or to affect your salvation this would mean that some of us would want to look at things that we're doing that might be causing us to sin in the old testament talking about idolatry god said my people constantly put things in front of them that cause them to sin should i allow myself to be heard of by them at all in other words god's saying if you're going to constantly put idols in front of you and they lead you into sin then should i allow myself to be heard when you pray to me 
And we could kind of move that forward and say, if we as Christians are constantly watching things, are constantly looking at things or doing things or having things or going through experiences that lead us into sin, then where does that leave us in our relationship with Christ? And that means there might need to be a sacrifice made. Years ago, when I was the youth pastor in Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, I also had my own business. And I would work long hours at the business and then I would come home, relax for a little while in front of the TV. And I found myself watching too much TV. Wasn't watching anything bad. Uh, it's hard to get anything bad on TV back then. I guess you could have gotten, I don't even know, eight um, uh, DVD players were around at that point. Um, but I wasn't I was watching anything bad, uh, but I was spending too much time watching TV and not preparing for the kids. So I asked my wife if we could get rid of the TV. And we got rid of it, gave it to her sister and got it back later on, by the way. But at that point, I felt it's better for me to get the TV out of here because I'm not being able to show the control that I need to have in order not, in order to be effectively teaching these kids that are here. And so sometimes you have to give things up and that's okay. Sometimes there are things that you need to give up here that may be valuable, but you give them up because they are hurting your relationship with Christ or even make it impossible for you to be able to be saved. All right, so I think that that is what he's saying. I believe that that is the, the answer uh, to your question, if I understood it completely, and I'm sorry that I didn't see the connection between the other passage. Uh, maybe, maybe there was another passage, all right? So we have a question from um, Albert. Albert, good to see you, good to have you join us. He joins us from YouTube. Albert says, do you think tribes of Gad and Reuben could be a typical carnal Christian in that they both claim belief and follow, follow uh, fellowship with God, but don't enter into the intended blessings because of their choices. So Gad and, and Reuben, I'm trying to think of the reference that you're talking about. Um, Gad, are you, you're talking about them being on the other side of the Jordan River? I'm thinking that they wanted to remain on the other side. That was the half tribe of Manasseh. Um, I, could you give me a little bit more, Albert? I'll, I'll go to the end and, and look at it, but just kind of explain the situation a little bit more because I'm not quite sure what you're referring to when you say Gad and, and Reuben. All right, sorry about that. Um, if I can just get a little bit more information about the event that you're talking about. And let me just say this, and I'll look to see if I'm right or not. If we're talking about the tribes that didn't want to enter into the promised land, and Moses said, um, he was angry at them at first, and then they said, no, we'll go in and fight. We just want to stay back over here because there was good land for cattle on the other side. Bashan, the, uh, the, the bulls of Bashan uh, were on that side of the Jordan River. And so they wanted to stay over there. The bad part was, is that anytime the enemy attacked from that side, from the north, which is where Babylon is, where a lot of their enemies were, then they were the first ones to be attacked. They kind of became that front line. Now, do I think that they are a type of the carnal Christian who doesn't really want to enter in all the way in, in, into Christ? My answer to that is I could see that. I, I would want to look at it a little bit closer along those lines, really thinking about that. 
but I think the fact that they didn't want to enter in, they didn't want to go live in the promised land that God had given them, but they wanted to live on the other side, if that's the event you're talking about, which I think it is, then um, yeah, I think that could be carnal Christians. They don't want to go all the way in. They don't want to serve Christ with everything that they have. They have attachments to this world. They love the things of the world, which the Bible says in the book of James is idolatry. And because they have this great love for the things that are in the world, then they're carnal. Remember that the Corinthian church was carnal. I've had people tell me before, you can't be carnal and be a Christian at the same time. But Paul said, I wish I could write to you as spiritual, but I cannot for you are carnal. And we learn about their carnality as we make our way through the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The church was just an absolute fright. It was an absolute mess. They were eating other people. They were eating all the food and drinking all the wine and getting drunk at communion. Uh, their women were showing disrespect to their husbands uh, by not covering their head, which was a, was, which was a, a cultural thing. And we could talk about that if you want to, if you want to ask a question about women covering their head, we can cover that. Um, but, um, uh, Corinthians was just a mess, all kinds of problems that they had there. One guy was sleeping with his, his mother or his mother-in-law. The church didn't have a problem with that. There were just all kinds of things that were going on. They were very carnal and, um, they lived in an area where there was, um, the temple of Diana was right above them. I've been to the ruins of Corinth. They're very impressive ruins, by the way. And the Bema seat that Paul stood in front of, they've got that, they found that, that's there. And then there's the hill where you had the temple to Diana that was up on top of it and the prostitutes that would descend down into the city. And so Paul had to say to the Corinthians, don't you know that if you join yourself to a prostitute, that you're joining Christ to a prostitute? So he had to make that statement to them because of how carnal they were. And um, so yeah, we don't wanna partially follow Christ. The Bible says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The Old Testament says you will seek him and find him when you search for him with all of your heart. And so Lord, please help us that we would not be those who, uh, please help us that we would not be those uh, who would be carnal. But let us be sold out completely and totally to him. Just living wholeheartedly for him. All right, so I think I got that. Albert, you can go ahead and tell me uh, in the comments if um, I was right or wrong. Um, so we have a question from Itza. Itza joins us from YouTube as well. Itza says, question, why does the Bible sometimes use Lord, all caps, and sometimes Lord capitalized? I can't find a clear answer and it came up at Abiding Women last night. All right, it's a thank you very much. Yeah, um, so depending on what version of the Bible you're using, there is a distinction made in the Old Testament between when the word Adonai is used to speak of God and when the word Yahweh or YHWH, what is called, that is called the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton is the name of God in all consonants. And they probably wrote it that way. And we've kind of lost the name of God. Although I heard Dr. Michael Brown talking about it, who is, speaks Hebrew. He's a Hebrew um, scholar. And he was saying that a lot of Hebrew words only have consonants and that we pretty much know that it was Yahweh. That God's name was pronounced 
um, Yahweh. And um, I just think that's interesting because he's an expert in, in Hebrew and he believes that. But when God used his name, and you can go to the burning bush passage to look this up. When you go to Lord and it's the Tetragrammaton, it's YHWH, they'll distinguish it from Adonai. Now, depending on the version, they do it in different ways. In the New King James Bible, they distinguish it by all, all capital letters, but a larger L and then smaller, but still capital O-R-D, all capital. And if it's Adonai, they'll write lower L and then O-R-D in, in lowercase. And so then you would know it's Adonai. So I think in whatever Bible you're using, the Lord, all caps like that, would be the Tetragrammaton. And um, when uh, it's not, then it would not be. It would be Adonai. And if you have, if you have a couple of places where you see this in whatever translation that you're using, it's a, um, then go ahead and tell me where they're at. I'll bring it up on my Strong's Concordance that I have on my phone, and we can look at it and see if it's the, the Tetragrammaton. So that's the way you could do it. You could download the free app of the Strong's Concordance. And I, I say that because you don't need the, the paid for app. I don't, I, I don't haven't found anything on it. Um, and I wanna show you what that looks like. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and show you my phone here and I wanna show you what the app looks like so you can go and find it. Uh, okay, so just got names of people on there. All right, so there it is, Strong's Concordance. That's what the, the thumbnail for that looks like. It's the free version of it. Download it and then you will be able to, let me go back over here now. All right, so um, you'll be able to um, go to that passage, find the word Lord there, click on that, and it will tell you if it is Adonai or if it is the Tetragrammaton. So that's the way that you can find it out. And um, that's why translations use that as a distinction. And um, by the time, by the way, the Tetragrammaton is awesome. And I, I love the way it looks in Hebrew. And um, it's, uh, it's the name of God. And it was given to Moses from the burning bush from the angel of the Lord, which is really interesting. All right. So thank you, Itza. I hope that answers your question. And uh, if you, like I said, if you could put a scripture down in and we've got time today, then I'll take some time and look that scripture up and then we'll, uh, we'll take a look at it in the Strong's Concordance, which, which I think will be incredibly helpful. All right, so thank you, Itza. I appreciate that. I'm looking for another question here. All right, so um, Psychman says, let me just go ahead and bring this in. It's kind of a follow-up to his question. Um, he says, oops, um, I met Matthew uh, 9, 29. Everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children and lands for my name's sake shall receive a, a hundredfold and eternal life. And thank you, by the way, Psych Man, for putting that up in your reference, uh, the reference up there and actually spelling it out so I didn't have to go look it up. Um, so, yeah, I do believe that sacrifices that we make for God, we're going to receive. Now, is it connected to cutting off a hand or cutting off a foot or cutting off a hand or tearing out an eye 
because it's leading you into sin, which is not literal, right? We always want to say that because we don't want people to think I had to cut my hand off or pull out my eye. Jesus is talking about the importance, something that is as important as your right hand or your right eye. If it's going to keep you out of heaven, then get rid of it. So the importance of getting rid of things that are causing you to stumble, that are making you stumble. I take it in Matthew 29, uh, 28, 29, that what Jesus, or 18, 29, sorry, that what Jesus is saying there is that they've given things up for the kingdom, not given things up because they make them fall. So there could be different reasons why you would give something up. You give something up because keeping that in your life is causing you problems. And so for Christ's sake, you want to give it up. Um, one of our first assistant pastors, Sam Holloway, um, gave up fishing and hunting. He loved it, but it got in the way of the work that he was doing for Christ. And so he gave it up. That was like giving up, you know, and oh, people, I think that reference to in Matthew 18 could also be a reference to people being killed. Now, Peter is going to say, we gave up, but Peter says, we gave up everything for you. And then Jesus says, yes, and there's no one who hasn't given up all of these things that's not going to receive a hundredfold here and in the life to come. That's the, the Luke version of it. And so uh, I think there might be different reasons why you give it up. You give it up because something could be causing you to stumble. And this could be a person, maybe, you know, not divorce. We, we could deal with that too. It's, that's a very complicated subject. Um, but yeah, you could have a boyfriend or girlfriend that's causing you to stumble. And so you say, this is very important to me and I even love them, but I'm going to have to break this off because it's affecting my relationship with Christ. And there's nothing that's as important as my relationship with Christ. So I think that that, and then also saying, I'm going to do this work for the Lord. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go here and do this work for Christ. And that means that I won't be able to spend as much time with my family. And Jesus says, anybody that's done that, or if you are killed for your faith and you can't spend time with your family, anybody that has done that is going to receive a hundredfold here and also in the life that is to come. So there might be different reasons why you sacrifice and give something up. All right, so Albert said uh, they didn't enter into the possessed promised land. Yeah, so they did go and fight for it, but then they came back and stayed on the other side of the promised land. And um, was that intended by the text? Was God trying to give us a picture of not entering completely in? Um, I think that probably you could, you could make that argument. If not, it's a great analogy. Remember, we can use biblical things to make spiritual points as long as it's right. And not being carnal is something that we don't want. And they had all kinds of problems because they were on the other side of the river. And we could talk about all kinds of problems that we have because of our carnality. Uh, it, because we are carnal, it can create all kinds of problems uh, with us as well. So thank you for throwing that into the comment section there. I appreciate that. If you're new here, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we want to welcome you. If you have a question, write the word question down and then write out your question. We'll submit it in the comments section and then get to them in order. Um, we do this every uh, we do this every Thursday and excuse me, every Wednesday and every Saturday or most of them anyway from three to four. We might change that from four to five here pretty soon as well, by the way. Um, so Albert says, uh, they chose to stay out of the promised land as a result, expose themselves to the dangers of the world. Oh, let me just go ahead and bring it in here so you guys can see it. Um, and uh, expose themselves to the dangers of the world from their lack of proximity to other believers of God. Just wanted your thoughts and your insight.
So yeah, um, I got it right. And I do think that it is a type of carnality. I think it's a good analogy for it anyway. Because when we are carnal, we do separate ourselves from other people and we do make ourselves vulnerable. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, we also have a question from Linda. Linda joins us from Facebook. Good to see you, Linda. How do you show a person that they are following a false prophet when you give them facts and they, that they are false, but they still refuse to see? Um, yeah, I've had this problem myself. When you point out that someone is teaching something that is completely a lie or they're part of the, the false teachings of the faith movement, um, the name and claim it crowd. And I, I think what happens is that, you know, when, when God's word is shared, even if it's from someone who isn't teaching the truth, who teaches heresies, God's word is God's word. And so when God's word is shared, and oftentimes some of these false teachers, they spend their whole time just talking about having a better life, being a better dad, being a better mom, uh, how to be good with money, positive things, but they don't teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you're listening to it and you, you hear principles in the Bible about being a good mother. The Bible has plenty of those. And you think, well, that was good. That really blessed me. And so then when you tell them, hey, they believe that Jesus went to hell and suffered for our sins. This isn't right. The Bible says that it was by the shedding of his blood that our sins were forgiven. So when you share something like that with them, they get offended because they've been touched by them. Uh, but I would say, where does their loyalty lie? Are they loyal to that person that spoke the word of God, but maybe teaching false things? Or are they loyal to God? And if our loyalty lies on God, then we want to make sure that we're listening to people who are telling the truth, that are saying things that are right. They're saying things that are proper. And, um, you know, the Bible tells us uh, that in the last days, people are going to come teaching the doctrines of demons and men are going to keep up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. And there are plenty of those teachers around today who just want to tickle our ears. So how do you show a person that they are following a false prophet? And I think that you want to distinguish between a false teaching and a false prophet. So a false prophet is just someone that's just false. They shouldn't be a prophet. They're just a false prophet. A false teacher is someone who teaches other things and teaches them. And there are some people that I can say they're a false teacher or they're a false prophet. There are others that I go, I don't know, but I know they're teaching this false doctrine. So I think first of all, you make that distinction, Linda, and you share with them that this teaching is false. We want to believe what the truth is. We want, you know, we want to be like the Bereans who were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians in that they received the word of God with all joy, but they sought the scriptures, they searched the scriptures to make sure those things were true. So we receive what God says with all joy, but we search it to see what, what it's, what's true. There can be things that are said by people that are wrong, right? Obviously, when you get into a Q&A like this and you got to start talking about a lot of nuances with Christianity, you realize, hey, there are a lot of things that we could have slightly off, we could have wrong. I want to know what the truth is. I want you guys to search what's being said before you really receive it all the way. Receive it with joy, but search the scriptures to make sure that those things are true. 
that's what I would encourage your friend along that line. That it's a good thing for them to search the scriptures. They aren't to just believe anything that anybody says. And because in the last days they're going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. And in the last days they're going to teach doctrines of demons. And we do not want to be a part of that. Right? So we want to find we want to find ourselves as far away from false teachings as we possibly can. And maybe by pointing out the false teaching, instead of calling the person a false doctor, a false prophet or a false teacher, might be a softer way to get them to realize that what they're believing is a lie. All right? And I think that might be, I think that could be helpful. Okay? And that's the way that I do it. Um, I, I, I don't want to judge where I don't know. So I don't know whether someone who's teaching the prosperity gospel is a genuine Christian or not. I don't know if they're deceiving people and they know they are, or if they believe what they're saying and they themselves are deceived and they're deceiving other people. And so since I don't want to judge, and the Bible says the way that you judge is the way you're going to be judged, I want to make sure I judge rightly. And when, when, when the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged, God's telling us, hey, be careful. It's not that we're not supposed to judge, because we are, but the way we judge is the way we're going to be judged. God holds us to our, the standards that we put out there. So I want to be careful to call somebody a, a false prophet. When I can see it clearly, and I know they are, then I could call them that. But if I don't really know, then I want to be really careful that I don't end up calling them that just in case they're not. And I want mercy from God. I want God to not judge me harshly. And so I want to be careful with how I judge others. But when it comes to being strong on the scriptures and being able to point out false teachings, we should do that every time we get a chance to. And if people are believing false teachings, then we really ought to point out that false teaching. All right. So thank you, Linda. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have, looking for another question here. Uh, if you are here for the very first time, we want to welcome you. And if you have a question, then you can just write the word question in front of it and then write uh, out your question. Reread it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense and that you're saying what you want to say. Um, include, any, um, include any scripture references that you would want. And um, we'll, we'll take time to take a look at them. Uh, and we have a question from, uh, from YouTube. All right. Looks like it's Brian or Brianna. Brianna. Yeah, Brianna. Sorry, Brianna. Um, question, is Leviticus 19.28, you shall not make gashes in your flesh for the dead or um, in, in, uh, incise any marks on yourselves? Uh, referring to tattoos as well. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, the, the important part here is for the dead. Um, the reason that they got tattoos was in order to show for their God, or here, they gashes in their flesh for the dead, which we're not quite sure exactly what that means. I don't think it's the same today as someone getting that, a tattoo of a frog on their arm. Why people would want a frog on their arm, I have no idea. But a lot of tattoos, you wonder, why that person put that there? 
And sometimes they have very significant meanings. They get them because they mean something. And for Christians, they get tattoos because they have a significant meaning about Christ. And I don't think that's the same as this Old Testament law. And a couple of things here, Brianna, first of all, we don't live under the law. We don't have to follow the commandments of the law. The commandments of the law never saved anyone. We want to, we want to follow the spirit of the commandments to be sure. Why did God give those commands? And if God told them that they were not to um, get tattoos because tattooing the flesh was bad, because God didn't want us to mark our bodies because our bodies are sacred. If, if that, that's not what it says, but I'm just saying if God said that, then the principle would be carried forward. But because it was how they used tattoos and we no longer, well, people do use put tattoos on them for the right and wrong way. So a tattoo could be sin if they put it on for the wrong reason, but it also might not be. My late wife, Lisa, had Jew 21 on her, right, right here on her thumb. And when she would get her hair done or she'd be getting her nails done, people would ask her what it meant. And it's the passage that says, keep yourself in the love of Christ. And she would use that as a way to witness to them. She had a tattoo so she could remember that verse for herself and also witness to people who saw the tattoo that was on her hand. And I, I think that's awesome. So I don't think that it's saying that we don't get tattooed, not for us not to get tattoos. Um, when it also comes to the law, um, I, I think of another law that says that those that communicate with the dead, remember they're getting, they're, they're cutting their flesh for the dead, but those that communicate to the dead, mediums, um, are an abomination to God. That act is an abomination to God. And so that becomes very strong and we could carry that principle over. We know we're no longer under the law, but we carry that principle over and we have references to witchcraft and soothsaying uh, in the Bible. So, um, and, and, excuse me, in the New Testament as being bad as well. So it kind of crosses over to the New Testament. But as far as the law goes, that was for the theocracy. The law never saved anyone. We read it to get the spirit of the law. We read it to get the principles that are taught there. And we want to carry the principles forward, but the actual acts themselves we don't have to do. And um, I think that's really important for us to understand. So I don't think that the, um, that the Bible itself uh, would want to stop us from, would, would, would uh, give us any kind of a commandment that we would not get tattoos today. So sorry for any kids who are listening that their mom and dad told them not to get it and maybe given them that verse. All right. Um, but I really believe that that's not what it's saying. All right. So again, good to see you guys. And if you have a question, then write out the word question and go ahead and put that in the uh, comment section. And looks like we don't have any questions here. Any more questions? So I can, and I can't remember what I was going to return to now. I was going to return to something if I had some time. Um, and it uh, doesn't look like I remember what it was. I need to make myself some notes as we're doing um, these Q and A's. So it's been really good being here with you guys. Uh, I hope that you guys are blessed. Stay close to Jesus, love him, and um, make sure that you stand fast and firm 
for all that God has for you, living wholeheartedly for him. We had two questions today about carnality. One of them that was, you know, our Gad and Reuben on the other side of the Jordan River, a, a type of us not going into the promised land, or living wholeheartedly for God. And um, we want to make sure that we are not carnal, but we're living and giving everything that we have to God. All right, so I'm signing out. God bless you guys. We will see you.